You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. It's truly an honor today to introduce our special guest, Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin is a renowned professor of animal science at Colorado State University and a trailblazer in the field of autism advocacy. She is widely recognized as one of the world's most accomplished individuals with autism, and her work has been covered in major media outlets, including the New York Times, People, National Public Radio, as well as 2020. Dr. Grannon has authored several books, including the bestsellers, Thinking in Pictures and The Autistic Brain, which have transformed our understanding of autism and visual thinking. Her insights into the world of autism have helped countless individuals and their families, and her pioneering work in animal science has revolutionized the livestock industry. Dr. Grannon was honored in Time Magazine's 2010, the 100 most influential people in the world. Today, we are privileged to have her with us to share her wisdom and experiences. Welcome, Dr. Grannon. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. It's great to be here. Well, Dr. Grannon, I can't thank you enough for being here with us today. And we're truly honored to have you on the podcast. And I wanted to kick things off. You know, I know you're well known for your work as an animal behaviorist, but you're also known as an advocate for people with neurodivergent traits. So I'm curious to know, how did your experiences growing up with autism shape your perspective on animal behavior and vice versa? I'm an extreme visual thinker. Now, I didn't know that other people thought verbally until I was in my late 30s. But what I would do when I first started out working with cattle is I'd get down in the chutes to see what they were seeing. And um, they'd balk at a shadow. They'd refuse to step over a, a reflection on water. Little things that we don't notice the cattle noticed. And in the early 70s, when I started on this, this was really new stuff. Nobody had thought to look at those things. And so I looked at what cattle were seeing. I got even more insight when I found out that a lot of people think verbally, but I found that out like 10 years later. And and if you think verbally, you wouldn't be looking at what an animal sees because an animal lives in a sensory-based world, not a word-based world. What is the dog smelling, seeing, hearing? It's sensory-based. In fact, I have a whole chapter in my new book on visual thinking just on animal consciousness and people need to get away from words if they want to understand animals. Yeah, and it sounds like in some ways you relate to animals a whole lot better than maybe would say maybe people. Well, I have learned how to how to relate with people, but I'm one one of the things I talk about in my new book on visual thinking is that we need all the different kinds of thinkers. Okay, your office is in charge of uh, getting things patented. Well, there's things that you can patent that are made by visual thinkers. If you go back to when the patent office first started, all of the devices were mechanical, grain harvesting equipment made by a blacksmith, uh, airplane made by bicycle mechanics, that'd be the Wright brothers. They were mechanical devices. That's the kind of thinker like me who's terrible at algebra, can't do higher math. 
who's getting screened out of programs now. Then you have your mathematical thinkers, and they're coming up with some new uh, chemistry thing. You know, and that's the kind of stuff that requires mathematics. And then you have the word thinkers. But the patent office, the first when it first started, was ruled by the object visualizers that see how mechanical things work. It seems like we're losing a lot of that in today's society, I would think, where people are really thinking visually. It seems like a lot of verbal thinkers. Well, part of the problem is they're requiring so many higher math requirements in the schools. I do have done a lot of engineering, but it's the kind of engineering that people in the shop do, where you just figure out how to make something mechanical. I've worked with people that barely graduated from high school and owned the metal shops and have multiple patents, and their stuff is being used in the beef industry right now. And the problem is, is that they're retiring out and those shops are not getting replaced. Taking out shop classes were bad. Now we've put shop classes back in, but I found out they won't let special ed kids take shop. And when I was out in the in the beef plants all the time working on this, um, uh, supervising the installation of stuff that I had designed, 20 percent of the people I worked with were undiagnosed, autistic, dyslexic or ADHD. Special ed builds the stuff. And it's a good, uh, you know, people like Thomas Edison was probably on the spectrum. Einstein was probably on the spectrum. He had delayed speech. Uh, And I'm concerned that my kind of mind is getting screened out because you have to have algebra and all this higher math for professions that absolutely don't require it. And most of the people I worked with could not do higher math, but they could invent anything mechanical. And I think that's a really good point because you mentioned your book, Visual Thinkers, but I want to go back to another book that you've written called The Autistic Brain. And there you talk about how people with autism often have a unique way of thinking. And you've just alluded to that there. And that can actually lead to breakthroughs in science and technology. And so in autumn, we're, you know, we're technology transfer professionals. We really want to support researchers with diverse perspectives. How do you think we can better create an inclusive and welcoming environment for neurodiverse individuals to ensure their innovations reach their full potential? Well, the first thing is you have to realize different kinds of thinking. My kind of mind right now, I I don't know if I could graduate from high school in the state of California because I can't do higher math. And a lot of the people I worked with that have patented equipment out in the beef industry operating right now that are retirement age now wouldn't be able to do those classes either. See, there's two parts of engineering. There's what I call the clever engineering. That's what the patent office started on. And then there's the degreed engineer, the mathematician. And one thing I learned on working with these big beef plants and pork plants is that it was interesting how the engineering work got divided up. The people working in the shop invented the clever mechanical equipment. And the degreed engineer would do boilers and refrigeration. We never worked on that stuff. We didn't understand it. That's the stuff that requires a lot more mathematics. You see, and we were doing just fine on that, but where we're losing out is on the clever engineering department. And we're we're losing skills because one of the reasons why I did my book called Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions, is this stuff we don't make anymore, like a state-of-the-art chicken plant, a state-of-the-art pork plant. the state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machine. They're from Holland. Yeah, we have a problem here of stuff we're not making. We have a whole bunch of people without skill sets to do them is what you're really saying. Well, I can tell you where they've got an autism diagnosis. They're playing video games in the basement when they ought to be out building stuff. There's a relationship between 
stuff that we don't make anymore, stuff we used to make 20 years ago, the kind of stuff the patent office patented when the patent office first started. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you going back, you know, it's not one of your books, but, you know, I'm a big TED Talk fan and you've you've had a TED Talk and that TED Talk was the world needs all kinds of minds. And you've been talking here the last few minutes about the need for different types of minds. And so I think it's really important that we embrace neurodiversity. Can you talk a little bit? And I think you have about how that leads to better outcomes. Well, let's, I, there's, when it comes to autism, they come like in three specialized kinds of thoughts. And when, you ha- when you're autistic, you tend to be the more extreme. I'm an extreme object visualizer. Uh, another autistic person might be the extreme mathematician, the physicist, the brilliant physicist. And then you have a word thinker that knows all the facts. Most regular people are kind of mixtures. I know a number of people that think visually and they manage to get through engineering classes with C's and some of the hard math classes, but they got through it. You know, they but there's skills that you need. In visual thinking, um, we, I talked about you know preventing disasters. I couldn't believe it when I found out why Fukushima burned up. The mathematicians did a great job of making it earthquake-proof, perfect. But they didn't make it waterproof because they didn't see the water coming over the seawall and drowning the electric emergency cooling pump. I want to emphasize electric, simple, watertight doors. They didn't see the water going in there. I just couldn't believe it when I found out about that. And I think I recently heard you talk about one of your most recent interests is the tales of airplanes. You were talking about that there have been several crashes. Well, that was actually some of the older stuff where either a piece of it fell off. Right. Or a major thing for steering busted in it. And that was what I talked about that in the TED talk. And that was like, you know, four or five crashes where, um, where it was strictly mechanical. And I could tail. Major piece fell off or the steering inside it failed. But it involved the tail, losing a piece of it. Or the jack screw thing, uh, Frank, you know, uh, didn't work right. And I pulled that out of the ocean with the metal shards coming off of it. It's never been lubricated. And the problem you had with that tail stuff is when the pilot walks around the plane, they cannot see those problems. Where if there's something wrong with a tire, now I'm, I'm a visual thinker. So now I'm seeing the pilot at the Denver airport coming out of the jet bridge door with his phone in his hand and showing us the gashed tire. And we we're going to have to get the tire changed on that plane. Yes, he can see that. This tail stuff they couldn't see. You see the way that had to be dealt with. And this is a number of years ago now is rigorous inspections of that stuff inside the tail. So we've been talking about neurodiversity and visual thinkers, and obviously there are a lot of different misconceptions about neurodiversity. Can you talk a little bit about some of the most common misconceptions and how we can better promote awareness and acceptance of neurodivergent individuals? I'm going to tell you, we need their skills. We need their skills. It's that simple. And I can give you some tips on working with them. Vague instructions don't work. Also, don't give me long strings of verbal instructions. I cannot remember them. Uh, and there was a two electrician apprenticeships lost because they had yak, 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 uh, ceiling fixture, yak, yak, light switch. And the person couldn't remember. No, let them write it down. Write down the, the uh, things you want me to do. And rapid multitasking. Um, 
don't put me on the McDonald's takeout window. <laughs> let's, let's just avoid some of that kind of stuff. But people that are inventing things are not doing multitasking. And we're, we're, we're losing it right now in the U.S. is on the mechanical stuff. And if you look at pictures of the electronic chip making machine, when you take the white covers off, it just is like big white boxes. So you take the white covers off. There's lots of stuff in there. I went on their webpage. I saw people with tiny screwdrivers fixing stuff on that thing. You see, you need the, the mathematicians did the physics behind it. And that was done here in the U.S. The physics behind it was done here. But making the machine and all the mechanical stuff with it was done in Holland. And it goes back to their educational system. And the problem is we're sticking our nose up at Votech. Even though we got some schools starting now to put it back in, within the last month, I was on two Zoom calls that I'm really disturbed about. And one was with a high school that was um, that did um, uh, animal science. And at the and the question answer, this girl came up to the screen because they had to come up to the computer to talk to me. And she says, my guidance counselor said that I shouldn't take Votech. They didn't want me trying. And the other meeting was a gifted meeting in Colorado. And they told me that the parents didn't want their kids doing any Votech stuff. Well, I'll tell you right now, the Votech stuff ain't going to get replaced by artificial intelligence. No, there's no way. There's going to be legal stuff and medical stuff that will get replaced. I'm following that real closely. Hands-on stuff is not getting replaced. So where does that leave us as a society? What happens when, you know, that stuff isn't replaced? Where do we get some of these products or we, do we just not get them anymore? For 10 years in my livestock handling class, I've had an assignment where the students have to um, look up um, animal behavior papers on scientific databases. And I was horrified just in this last class that I'm doing right now. I got over 50 kids in that class and only about four or five even knew what those databases were. Oh, my. And so now, in this time of AI, we've got to teach students to go back and look at primary sources. If it's something on the news, let's see if it's the same on all the four networks. Those are primary sources. If it's something scientific, go to Google Scholar or PubMed or Science Direct and look and, and, and look at the scientific papers, primary sources. And we now have to do a new thing called Tilt that I had to put in my resume. And basically what I was asked was uh, what have students learned in my class on cattle handling that goes beyond cattle handling? And I'll tell you right now, the single most important thing they're going to learn in my class, and it might be one of the most important things they're going to learn at the university, is how to use scientific databases and the importance of going to primary resources. The single most important thing they can do now with this AI stuff coming. Yeah, that definitely seems to have been lost over the last however many years. And you know, I want to go back to your book, The Visual Thinker, because in that book, um, and, and I've read it, it's it's really excellent. And I wouldn't encourage listeners to go out and get a copy. Um, it highlights the importance of nurturing and supporting the skills of individuals who think in visual terms. So how do you think technology transfer professionals can leverage the skills of visual thinkers to advance their work in science and technology? Well, it depends upon what industry you're in. In my industry, where I was, there were a lot of shop people that barely graduated from high school inventing all kinds of complicated hydraulic devices that are still being used today. So that's the one kind of thing. And, and then you have people doing much more mathematical things. They might invent something in chemistry, some new material thing. Uh, that'd be the more mathematical minds. And I, I, one of the things, if you're working at a university, is reaching out to um, you know, to different different people. 
But let's look at something like the Mars roll. We're going to roll NASA fan. The engineers with the math got the Perseverance to Mars. But somebody did hand-done wiring on that. The cameras were built on a workbench. Those cameras aren't very big. Each one of them would fit in a shoebox. You're talking about something that somebody made on a workbench, a one-of-a-kind, they're two-of-a-kind thing. And then I read about making that little helicopter. And they had a whole bunch of failures. But somebody had to tinker around with that thing, and they made it. You see, you need both the mathematical mind, and but you also need my kind of mind that I'm very concerned is getting screened out. I'm, I'm seeing students, they've come up to me, they're on their second and third algebra class for veterinary nurse. Oh, wow. Yeah, you don't need algebra for that. No. The two-year degree. Oh, that's incredible. So I wanted to ask you, you talked before about yourself who has autism, people who are dyslexic and people who have ADHD, and um, they tend to face social and communication barriers in the workplace, and they can be even more pr pronounced than maybe just a regular individual. So what strategies have you found, given your experiences, to be most effective in helping to overcome these challenges? Well, some of the people I worked with in the workshops, they had their own businesses, one of the things that they did. But first of all, they got to get into the workplace. I was just on a big uh, call this morning, people that do electrical power. And we talked about, you know, you've got so many barriers online and all this stuff. We got to cut through some of that stuff because the way I sold my jobs, I designed the front end of every Cargill beef plant in North America, was I showed people my work. And on a podcast, I can't show off my work, but it's in my book, Visual Thinking. It's in a lot of my other stuff. I'm showing work. That's how I sold clients. Drawings, pictures of jobs, trade magazine articles I've written. I showed my work. That's what I did. And, and I'm very concerned about my kind of thinker getting screened out um, because I, who's going to keep the water systems running? You see things like that that really matter. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like the way you handled it was you showed them what you had accomplished in the past. I showed them my work. So we need to be doing things. Okay, I talked to an airline. I talked to um, mechanics. I'm, your best mechanic's probably not going to be that social. Maybe he, he needs to bring in uh, pictures of a car that he rebuilt and show it to the head of the airline mechanics for that. Show it to the people. I had to show my work to a person that would care about my work. You know, I didn't show it to the HR department. I didn't show it to the legal department. Showed it to the plant manager and the engineering department. So how would you say, have you seen changes towards neurodiverse individuals like yourself change over time? Do you think there's being, you know, is there more acceptance? Do you think people become more inclusive or do you think there's still a lot of hurdles to overcome? Well, there's a lot of hurdles. But the other thing I want to show is you need us. You need us people that are different. You need us really bad. And I've talked to a lot of corporations. And there's a tendency to talk about all this stuff in very vague terms. Like I, I did a, a, a in-person visit to a travel company. Really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the online travel stuff. And uh, they were talking about being inclusive airport. Now, I don't think about that in the abstraction. So the blind person said, you know what really I have a problem with is finding gates. So I go, hey, let's make a gate finder app. <laughs> so that as he walks down the concourse, the gates announce themselves. Now I could do it with transponders. 
and uh, little transponder stickers stuck on the gates. That's totally doable. All the airport would have to do is stick the transponders on. And, but you see, that's something specific. Very, very specific. It's yes. very specific. It's something they could actually do. It's also something patentable. Yes. I, I challenged somebody to make my gate finder app. <laughs> there you because go. when we got discussing about neurodiversity and stuff like that and about disability, let's make something specific that would actually be extremely useful to that blind person. Absolutely. That's a really great idea. And that just popped into my head. So let me ask you, you know, again, you've mentioned yourself as a young person and all these young people, whether they have ADHD, dyslexia or other neurodivergent traits, you know, um, they face a lot of challenges in school. We've been talking about that and trouble with algebra. And what would you suggest to them in terms of if they're interested in pursuing careers in science and technology, what advice would you have for them in terms of seeking out their careers? Well, if they're in college, you do internships because you have the mathematical neurodiverse. There's two kinds of neurodiverse. Autism. You've got the visual kind like me that can't do higher math. And then you've got the mathematician geniuses. So if you're one of those people and you're in a university, get involved in lots of different stuff. You know, there's all kinds of opportunities. Find out what you like. Find out what you hate. But what I'm concerned about is my kind of thinker getting screened out. And because I can, I'm the one who's going to say, hey, you better put waterproof doors on Fukushima. I just couldn't believe they hadn't done that. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. And what about younger kids who are maybe in elementary school and middle school? You know, that that's a, a tough time for those kids, you know, because they are struggling in school. Um, and obviously, if they're visual thinkers, they have a lot to offer and they have talents and gifts. What advice would you have for those kids? We need to put all the hands-on classes back in the schools. That's what we need to be doing. I'm seeing all kinds of students growing up today. They've never measured anything. They've never used a tool. I just talked to a shop teacher a few days ago, and he told me he has to spend two days now in class just teaching them to measure because they haven't measured anything. And then when a kid gets a label, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, seeing kids like building elaborate things with Legos, and nobody thought to introduce tools. Yeah. And measurement is such a fundamental thing because even, you know, you get your first house, your first apartment, you've got to measure to figure out what size furniture you need. Something just basic like that. And if people don't, kids and young adults don't know how to measure, that's just something that's fundamentally basically wrong. Well, my sister told me, you know, she lives in New York. There's a company in New York called the Couch Doctors. And people buy couches that don't fit in the elevator because they did not measure the elevator. So the couch doctors come and hack the couch apart on the street, put the hacked up couch in the elevator and reassemble it in the apartment. That's an actual business. So, Dr. Grin, I want to ask you, I mean, you've spent a lot of time as an animal behaviorist. What kind of things are you, are you working on now? Tell us what some of your new projects are, if you can share some of those with us. Well, we did a very interesting project on horse perception. Really? You know, an animal is a visual thinker. And so think, oh, I can't do any any visual demonstrations because it's a podcast. But um, let's take a little children's play set that's got a little slide and a swing. That slide looks totally different when you face it head on and when you look at it sideways. So you walk a horse by this children's play set 15 times until he no longer stops, no longer rears the head and flares the nostrils. Then you rotate that play set 
it becomes something new. You see, we would look at it and go, yeah, it's a kid's toy. Well, the horse doesn't do that. It looks totally different, rotated. That's really interesting. And so um, so you've done that with horses. And, and what's kind of the, the goal, the outcome of, of that kind of study in horse perception? Well, one of the reasons why it's important is people say, my horse spooked for no reason. Well, maybe he spooked because you put his feet trough up on end. Something as simple as that. It now has become a novel object. So what this study would do is, is explain to me why my horse spooked. I Then I had a student uh, uh, call me up and uh, his steer had gone berserk at a show and they had practiced in the arena. It turns out they would put up a new advertising banner and the steer did not like that new banner. Wow, that's incredible that something as simple as a banner could affect an animal. Well, you're talking a banner that... Oh, it's probably like, you know, six by four feet, something like that. It wasn't that big, just hanging off the ceiling, but it wasn't there before. Really interesting. Uh, that's some of the stuff we've been working on. We're doing some stuff right now. One of my students is finishing up a project on looking at how mama cows uh, protect their calves, finding some very interesting uh, findings in that with the temperament of the animal. And. What are you most excited about in the world of science and technology today? And how do you think some of these new innovations might impact the lives of people, let's say, such as yourself with autism and other people who might have disabilities? Well, the blind person would like the Gatefinder app. Yes, exactly. See, my mind thinks, and that's patentable. Let's go, let's have somebody go out and invent that. And and then we, and I'm probably going to put it on a transponder platform because if I use AI, he'd have to hold the, the camera up to look at the gate signs. And every airport's gate signs are different. I've actually been looking at them and going, well, this airport is not going to work. And so transponders probably be the way to go. And, and you know, that you're going to have to have the mathematicians program that stuff. But I'm the one who thought up the idea for that. It just came up like that. <laughs> we have to remember that you're the uh, the person who suggested that idea. Well, yeah, but he's saying then somebody has to make it. Exactly. But the thing is, somebody has to think it up. And we're discussing all this stuff in a very vague way. You know, now what some tech companies are doing right now is uh, having uh, having these students come in and do coding uh, exercises and stuff. They're coding camps. And then they have a chance to demonstrate the skill. We're going to have to change. We're going to be screening a lot of very good candidates out. If it all count is an interview with HR. Because a person that interviews great with HR is not going to be the best inventor. Absolutely. I would agree with you on that one. Yeah. This is the problem. They may not necessarily have those social skills, as we were talking about a little bit earlier. They're that visual thinker. They're not a verbal person. You know, might not be somebody who's going to have a, you know, a, a really long, detailed conversation with you, but they think in pictures. And so they're going to be more maybe quiet, reserved, say less. But you know, they're going to be that person who goes out and, you know, like you says, uses their hands and builds something and invents something. Well, an interview for me was laying the drawings out on the table and showing off the pictures. That's how I sold jobs. And oftentimes the people in the shop don't get enough credit. It made me very annoyed. I won't say where I was, but the degreed engineers had fancy offices in the tower and the machine shop and everything else, they were down in the tunnel with the cable trays. Every time I see cable trays now, I get mad. <laughs> One thing I can say about the meat industry, we're democratic. 
Everybody <laughs> has a horrible office. Everybody, that's and it's funny. over the boiler room and it shakes. Oh, my. We're, we're democratic on awful offices. But I've been in other places where um, they kind of look at, you know, and this is the same thing where that girl came up to me on the screen and said, my guidance counselor said I shouldn't, you know, take Voltech classes. It's a different kind of intelligence. We need the whole team. Exactly. And and the best results come back, like you said, when you have a whole uh, well-rounded team, which is somebody who is a visual thinker, somebody who's a linear verbal thinker, I mean, to really achieve the best products and achieve the best result. Well, and the thing with the GateFinder app, I'm, I want something where, you know, any airport that's put the transponders in, you just um, hit the GateFinder app and it starts talking to you. It just starts giving you gate numbers. And then, then when you get into the um, place where it's like a, a spokes on a wheel, A, B, C, D concourses, um, well, then if you walk one way, it'll start giving you A gates. You walk another way, they always pretty much keep the numbers on the same concourse. And I don't want to have to have them learn how to use it. So, Dr. Grin, you've you had an amazing career. You've done so much in your life and you're still doing a lot. I, I want to know what inspires you day in and day out. Well, I think now what I, I want to see the next generation, I, you know, get into stuff, get into good jobs. And I'm worried about a lot of neurodiverse individuals being screened out. We need the skills because 20 percent of the people that built things for me were neurodiverse, undiagnosed. We need the skills. There's heads of big companies in tech that I'm sure are neurodiverse. We need the skills. It's that simple. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something to be said for, you know, people, whether they have autism, I have ADHD, there's people, I've, I have siblings with dyslexia. I mean, we all think, like you said, differently. And you can see the benefits of having that, you know, differing viewpoints, different perspectives, um, along with the linear um thinker. So, you know, it really is something, um, like you said, that we need all those minds. Well, the verbal thinker overgeneralizes. Like you're talking about how can we get more inclusive for neurodiverse? I'm going to start looking at, let's look at different specific jobs. My kind of mind, the mechanical stuff, anything mechanical. You have a mathematical programming people. Well, let's get them in a coding camp and they show their skills off. I know that some of the tech companies are doing that. So we're doing a better job with the mathematicians, but where we're not doing a good job is with the visual, the photorealistic object visualizers like me, because you're going to just screen me out with all this higher math stuff that I can't do. But somebody needs to say, where's the watertight doors on Fukushima? Or even think up the GateFinder app. The mathematicians are going to have to do the um, uh do the mathematics, and then I want to have a transponder that's going to work. That's not. Um, I'd love to get a transponder that doesn't have to have, have to have a battery in it, because then I have to rely on the airport. <laughs> there you go. Which they won't. <laughs> well, I just wanted to ask you, um, as we're coming to a close here in the podcast, you know, in, in reading your book, Visual Thinking, one of the things that really struck me about that book is you talk a lot about your mother in it, and she seemed like for you know, um, someone at the time who was really progressive in her views, you know, um, she, you talk about her taking you to a neurologist versus I think it was a psychologist. And she was very instrumental in telling you to get outside and get involved in things, um, even though you were a different type of thinker and maybe a different type of child. I had a lot of problems with a child. I got an excellent early intervention program by two and a half. That was super, super important. Two teachers just did it out of the basement of their house. Uh, mother always developed my interest in art. 
and broadened my skills. I, she had a good idea of stretching me. I'm seeing too many neurodiverse individuals today where they're, they're becoming a label and they're not learning shopping and life skills and just basic stuff that they need to be learning. I, I, I was shopping when I was in elementary school. And you talk about your mother taught you manners. She That's taught right. you spent a lot of time teaching you how to read and do all these different things. And I wonder, what would your message be to parents of neurodivergent kids today? All right, let's start off with little kids. I have another book I did with Deborah Moore called Navigating Autism. And the purpose of this book is mainly aimed at new parents to get the attitude right on working with these kids. Another big problem that we've got with autism is you're going from Einstein to somebody who cannot dress themselves. You have when the when the kids are little, you can't tell how they're going to come out. But early intervention always improves things. But I'm um, you're going from Einstein to you know, someone who's got very severe challenges, where if someone's diagnosed dyslexic, okay, they have difficulty reading. That's much more narrow. But they've combined all this stuff together in one big, huge name that covers uh, individuals that that are not going to work for a, a, a travel company or a power company, and individuals that are going to invent the next new equipment. You see, I'm being associative thinking. I'm thinking about this physics experiment on fusion. had a perfectly round ball in the middle of this apparatus. And I thought, somebody made that. I hope they're an author on the paper, because if it wasn't perfectly round, it did not work. Well, Dr. Grandin, I wanted to thank you so much for taking time with us today and sharing all your insights on the importance of embracing neurodiversity in science and technology. Um, quite frankly, your work as an advocate for individuals with neurodivergent traits has been truly inspirational and your perspective on visual thinking and the potential it holds for innovation and problem solving is especially valuable in, for technology transfer professionals. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. I think you're going to like my book, Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns and Abstractions. Like I said earlier, if people haven't read it, go out and get it. It's an excellent, excellent book. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.